Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for seeing, thanks for doing, thanks for downloading, thanks for subscribing. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. Today, we're in the wine space. I love wine. I, I'm so excited for you to meet my guests on our episode today. Jessica Moseko is here with Effy Vineyard out of Oregon. Did I say it right? You got it right, Justin. I'm, I'm so, so glad. glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here. I was excited to meet you. I love your story. I can't wait to t- have our audience hear your story. Um, and I just think really, really cool. I, I have not visited you yet in Oregon, but I, I plan to. And especially, I think our audience will want to after hearing today's story. But um, so great to have you with us. Let's do this, Jessica. Um, for those that may not know you or your winery slash vineyard, how about let's rewind the clock a bit and just share a little bit of your story and how you even got into the business. Sure, absolutely. So Afi means and daughter, and it's named that because my father and I co-founded the winery together 19 years ago. We did that because my dad, who was a software engineer, always had a hobby of making wine in the garage when I was growing up and I always helped him. And after 20 years of doing that, he called me at my job in biotechnology in San Francisco. And he said, you know, I I really love this winemaking thing. I'm thinking about doing it professionally. And I said, that's a great idea. You should go do that. (laughs) Yeah. Why not? (laughs) I mean, together. And so we co-founded the winery in 2003. Okay. So that sounds all simple. Like we just dropped everything and launched a winery, but I mean, it couldn't have been that easy easy, right? I mean, like, how did you even get started? How did you know, like, did we have the right land or that things would grow there? Or what do you, do you need to fertilize? Like, I, I mean, did you know the wine right. industry? Right. Well, first of all, so he did on the wine making side because he had been making wine as an amateur, just as a hobby for fun for 20 years. Um, I, you know, wine was never on my radar. I was a science major. Exactly. (laughs) Biotechnology. And so that was sort of my whole focus. Wine just wasn't on my radar. Um, But my dad really wanted to. And out of family loyalty, I knew that if I didn't say yes, he might not do it. So we started the winery together. And I would say that um, one of the reasons we started was because we wanted to run a business together. Um, We were not leaving our corporate lives to have other bosses or to have debt and investors. And so that definitely shaped how we started the business. We literally to each put $10,000 in one pot and said, how far can we get in one year? Oh, wow. And then after that, we plowed back everything that we made into building the business. So we essentially started small and doubled our production every year for a while. Well, we did have a small estate vineyard, but we decided that when we were going to um, start the winery, that we wanted to try to find the best vineyards that we could in a few different areas of the Willamette Valley and bring out some of what we thought would be the greatest hits if you will, of the Willamette Valley. So we found a couple of different vineyards that we wanted to work with. Our work with those vineyards is structured as long-term contracts. So I think of it like a lease arrangement. I There may be another owner of the vineyard, but I may have a long-term lease for row one to row 100, and oh, I control wow. all the cultural decisions within that. That's interesting. Okay. And then how did you decide where to start? You know what I mean? Which like Pinot Noir... 
other like you know what I mean? Like how did you decide what was gonna yeah. be the first product that you guys I'd say manufactured, right? Yeah, well, that was actually pretty easy because in the Willamette Valley, about 76% of what we produce is Pinot Noir. It's kind of our um, signature um, grape of the um, of the region. And so we knew we wanted to start there and grow from there. From there, we added in a Viognier, which is not very commonly found in the Willamette Valley. But we started with that because my dad, when he was making wine as an amateur for a hobby, he made a Viognier and we both fell in love with it. And so we really wanted to focus on that. From there, we also started doing a rosé, and then we've started to expand in the last few years outside of those as well. Wow. Um, talk about the market there in Oregon. What's the wine market look like and why this specific area is such a good place to grow? Does that make sense? But yeah, our audience may not understand. Yeah, totally. That's a great question. So uh, what I would say about Oregon is that we're tiny, but mighty. And when I say we're tiny, um, Oregon produces only one and a half percent of all of the wine produced in the United States. But that said, we're mighty because Oregon wine is growing at three times the growth rate of wine overall. And while we only produce one and a half percent of the wine, we produce over 20 percent of wine spectator scores over 90. Wow. So I'm not saying that Amazing. wine spectator is the yeah. arbiter, but it's <laughs> the, certainly the arbiter, right. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a proxy that we can use that totally. I would say we're punching over our weight in quality. And I think one reason for that is our climate. So we are located uh, where we have some really nice attributes from a climate from a uh, climate perspective. Sure. Um, that create wines that have bright fruit forward um, development, yet also retain their acidity and their tannin structure. Got it. That's very, really cool. And when you first started, was it we're making this for friends and family or was it we were, you know, for the local stores or like, what was your kind of path to at least at the early days getting product out? Yeah. So it really was friends and family. You know, like I said, we both plunked down $10,000. Right. How far <laughs> we so sold all we, the bottles. So we made back the 10,000. Exactly. <laughs> they right. were all people we knew. <laughs> sure. And um, we started small. But, you know, one of the weird things about wine, Justin, is that it's such a highly regulated industry right. that there are a essentially two major channels that we can um, sell into. The first is direct to consumer. And that one is pretty obvious. It's unrestricted. Uh, well, mostly unrestricted in this country. There are still a few states that do right. not allow direct yeah. shipments. Um, but that's a little bit more straightforward. However, anytime that a winery wants to sell to a business, business to business, i.e. a wine retailer or a wine re or a restaurant, um, we are forced to sell through the, the distributors yeah exactly yeah. exactly which we've talked about a lot on the podcast yeah, yeah. go ahead no go ahead exactly and at that time we were just too small right um to be able to satisfy the demand of distributors sure no, i totally get that and so what did that look like so you're you're, you're launched and growing your your father obviously knew how to make wine right and 
And and how did you figure out things like the bottles and the the you know labels and all that? Or did he already kind of know how to do all of that as well? No, we figured that all out entirely by doing it. So I would say, you know, given that um, his background was in software engineering and my background was in biotechnology, we've learned everything by making mistakes. I love it. <laughs> by the way, everyone, full stop. You heard that his background was what? Not you're in biotech. I mean, like you guys, computer science. Like, you can go and do what you're wanting to do. You, if you have something you're passionate about, you do not need to wait. Go do it. I mean, like I think that's what's so cool about this story is you didn't just you didn't just grow up as a wine family. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you decided we're going to go do this, and here you are growing a business. This was a chosen path and a chosen second career for both of us out of passion. So I always say like we did this before the great resignation was a thing. Right. <laughs> but we basically we basically my dad was um nearing the end of his corporate career and thought well what to do next? Well what I'd really want to do is make wine and what I really would like to do is make wine with my daughter. Um I Love was that. a little bit more at the beginning start phase of my career but I um you know, I, I actually held on to my day job for five years after yep. we started the kind of like the side hustle. And yeah, exactly. So yeah, exactly. And um, so I held on to my job. But the reason why I ultimately quit my job was because we had just had an experience. I am, um, you know, wine wines take on personalities to me. So by the time that we go to release them or market them, they have their own personality. So oftentimes, instead of, you know, going into great detail about the flavor profile, I will compare them to either a brand, a consumer brand that we're all aware of, or a uh, celebrity. And so one year when I was still working my day job, <laughs> I compared a wine to, I said, this wine is the Cameron Diaz of the lineup. It's accessible, fun, um, lively, but prettier than the girl next door. And Cameron <laughs> nice. Diaz's mother saw it and she ordered a case, but I was so oh, no busy watching a biotechnology drug right. that I didn't get to her for like a month. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait a second. Wait, so you're, pr you're printing out, you're getting orders. Here's Cameron Diaz. Here's Justin Hahnemann. Here's, you know, John Smith. And then, right. You just didn't realize, or you knew <laughs> I'm confused. No, I just didn't realize it. Right. And so then I realized, wait a second, stop. We, I have the opportunity to run our own business, work with my dad and work in wine. What am I doing? Right. And so I went in and resigned the next day. That's so funny. I love that. And so what happened? Well, we got it now. Everyone's wondering, you know, so what happened with Cameron Diaz? I shipped her mom her wine and said, I'm really sorry that it's a month late. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but she, you know, she's making wine now. Or she has her right. own wine. That's now, really so. cool. Um, okay. So. So then what? So how did you decide or and what would what did growth look like? Was it adding other types of wine or adding more uh volume or or case quantity so you could get to more markets? What did that look like for uh, over time? Adding more it was all about yeah, it was all about adding more volume. So a couple of things happened. One, because we started and said, "All right, we're going to plow back all of our revenue into the business. And we did that for so many years that we were able to slowly grow production. So what would happen is even though we were still at that time squarely focused on Pinot Noir, we could add in different vineyard sites and we could have different sort of sub product lines, if you will, sure. or different brands within that. Um, so we brought on new vineyards 
In addition to that, on the demand side, things started to shift a little bit because we started to get some nice write-ups in um, publications. And so sure. a few distributors came to me and said, hey, can we can can I represent your wines? And I said, no, we're way too small. And they, a few of them said, listen, we're okay with small. We're okay with a small allocation. Oh, wow. Good. And so we slowly started in New York and California when we were, I guess, about three or four years old. So that gave our entree into the distribution side of the business too. So then from both the supply side, we were growing as well as on the demand side. Got it. And then how have you built awareness of the brand or did you not want too much at first? You know what I mean? Like we don't need too much. We only have a couple cases versus like, we got a lot of product. Let's, you know what I mean? Like, how did you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say that at the very beginning it was, um, yeah, we didn't have much. And so I would say it was word of mouth. And then um, wine, wine review publications, like when wine reviewers would get a hold of our product and would review it favorably, then we'd see sort of new customers come in. But I will, I would say that, I mean, I didn't invest a penny in any marketing and sales until Oh my gosh, it's pretty embarrassing, but I'm going to say like 15 <laughs> years into the business. Um, but what, just, nothing wrong with that. I mean, why? I mean, what's there's no issue, right? I mean, you grow. Yeah, but I would I would say that awareness is probably you know every year I update our SWAT and every year I write out our kind of our key issues and and that will drive forth our updating our strategic plan and also our tactical plan. And every year I write as one of our key strengths, incredibly loyal direct to consumer um, customer base, but the number one weakness is generally, but it's a very low level of awareness. And so therefore we need to now start thinking about translating that um, consumer loyalty more broadly. Sure. And what, how are you staying engaged with the, the, those that are buying D to C you have a, a wine club and whatnot, but like yep. what, how have you developed those relationships over time? And do you see a lot of repeat uh, purchases and, and how have you managed that? Yeah. So some of the metrics that in wine we look at are number of wine club members, the w- duration of wine club membership, and then the average sales per per customer and then per club member. And what I would say about that is that we have a highly loyal and uh, we're over-indexed on sort of those types of metrics, how long they stay. I mean, I have many wine club members that started when I started with us in 2003. Wow. Um, So we're extremely lucky. I think one of the reasons for that is that we do have a high personal touch. You know, I write all of our copy. I (laughs) write all of our emails. Um, uh, if if a wine club member places an order, it's usually me that thanks them. <laughs> oh, nice! And I so like that. I think that <laughs> I mean there are scalability issues with that. Sure, but there are also there's also the personal touch also though. I mean, it's the personal touch, yeah, right? Exactly. The- Exactly. And I don't always do it, but like an example is when COVID first hit in when we were all still in lockdown mode, every single online order that we got, I personally thanked everyone. And I felt that it was critical that they were hearing directly from me in such an uncertain time. Sure. So, yeah. Although... (laughs) <laughs> there was a lot of alcohol sold during that time. <laughs> I think your sales price skyrocketed. Um, yeah. You <laughs> know, I will say though, in all seriousness, COVID was a 
a great catalyst yep. to consumer behavior. So, and what I mean by so that funny. is that, yeah, yeah I mean, well, what I mean by that is that for a long time, many years, people would say, hey, where can I find your wine in Cincinnati? And I would say, well, I don't have a distributor in right. Cincinnati, but you just order it online and it comes to your door. And right. they would, that was like too much. That was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how I buy wine. I don't order it. If I, I don't order a bunch of it and have it delivered to me, that costs too much because people are not used to paying for the shipping, not realizing that they are paying for the shipping when they buy it at their store. It's just embedded. It's in, embedded in the cost. The price. Right. Yeah. And so for so many years, my biggest frustration was that a lot of um, direct consumers could not wrap their head around ordering it online and having it shipped to their door. Well, obviously right. COVID got us all over that right. quickly. No, everyone's um, used to that. <laughs> right. So I think it was a real catalyst it, yeah. for consumers. Yeah. It's un, it's funny. Um, I, I was sort of joking about that, but we, I have heard that from another number of our other guests on where it's like, don't tell anybody, but actually COVID was good for our business. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it changed behavior from consumer to get used to new channels and new way of getting buying product. And it's just interesting. Um, so we talked about Pinot Noir, like, what other um, wine varietals? I think I'm using yeah. that. I'm not the yep. wine expert, although I like drinking wine. Um, it, where, where else are, are you going or have you gone? What's the plan? Yeah. yeah. Well, Justin, I did hear on a prior episode, you said Cap was your favorite. So I'm going to just spoil alert. <laughs> you listen to another. You're right. It is. I, but I, I will like, I like Pinot Noir too, though. I mean, like I just, you know, just like if I'm looking at a menu, I'm typically going there first. You know what I mean? I don't yeah, you know. Totally what are, totally for better or for worse, you know? Yeah. So I would say that, you know, kind of um, the decision-making of what we make has to do with what we think we can make really well in this region. And also our brand is kind of focused on the classics. Right. So what we're doing now is I started a, a sparkling program. So we have a sparkling wine program. We um, I'm start, we've expanded the Rosé program. I'm starting a Chardonnay still program. Mm. Um, what I, what I'm, what I meant by Chardonnay still is there is Chardonnay in our sparkling wine, but I mean a Chardonnay um, that is not. Oh, sparkling. I see. Chardonnay yeah. that's still, in other words, not yeah. bubbly. Not Got it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. No gas. And yeah. then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then this year I'm starting a Gamay program as well. That's awesome. Okay. And do you think, do you do that to attract a different consumer or to provide a, 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 a more of a variety to your current buyers? Does Actually, that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally makes sense. Both. Okay. I would say the reason for doing it is this, the latter, which is to add diversity to our current kind of customer segment. But inherently, it also ends up doing the former of bringing new customers in. So one of the things that I would say about that is that um, we've recently been able to kind of understand a little bit more about our customer database. And one of the things that I've learned is that our rosé drinkers look totally different from a demographic perspective um, and purchase history perspective than our Pinot Noir drinkers. And so I think inevitably you do start to attract a different type of yeah. consumer. And then even if it's just word of mouth, the word of mouth goes into a different community. Love it. That's really cool. I, I, that, I It's fascinating. And you've got, so what's really cool for all those listening, when you, when you sell direct to consumer, you have all of that data. I mean, you know what yeah. they've bought together, the amount of 
purchases and they you have where they live and you have their address and phone i mean you have all of that right and and um uh, most big cpg brands consumer products brands struggle with that with that because they don't have a good d2c channel so it's really interesting to see um that how you can leverage that and even thinking about innovation right you're innovating new products um out of that data um totally i think what's helpful for i mean i would say two caveats to that so you're totally right we have access to that data if they are buying from us directly right um but there are two caveats. The first is that we don't have any data if it goes to the distribution the channel. Retail so distributor, if, yeah. yeah, exactly. If somebody is buying, like I used the Cincinnati example from a store in Cincinnati, I have no visibility to knowing that. But if they are buying directly from us, then we have access to that information. The second caveat is that, remember, we grew from really, really tiny. And like I said, I didn't even invest in any sort of marketing and sales. <laughs> right. So our customer data does not give us life time value of the customer or sort of um, linear, we don't have the entire purchase history. We kind of have things cobbled together because I went from, you know, uh, having it in spreadsheets and Mm -hmm. on QuickBooks to scaling things from yeah what i love is i'm hearing like your technology and and engineering uh mindset come through and how you're talking about this it's so great (laughs) Um, i mean mine is inherently (laughs) art and science right my background it, it tends to be and because of my dad's background um it tends to be much more science process and tech it's so funny interesting yeah i can hear it like in your responses um you mentioned earlier that there's been a lot of errors and mistakes along the way we'd always love to hear about those um talk about a couple of them and what you've learned you know i I always love to give some advice to our listeners so I, i want them to hear some of the things you've had to work through yeah okay two um two come to mind the first is that i've already alluded to it took me a long time before i let go of my security blanket of my, my past life you know i came into this from biotechnology and i felt pretty confident about how i performed and my ability to support myself from an income perspective. And it took me five years to quit my day job. And after I quit my day job, it took me another several years to totally let go of consulting and helping on projects and things that fulfilled two needs for me, one money and two um, ego. Uh, that I knew I was good at it as as opposed to wine where I didn't have that knowledge. And I did that for longer than I should have. It wasn't until my dad died um, in 2017 that I didn't have a choice anymore. I had to let go of that entirely and focus a hundred percent of not just my time, because I was probably already giving it a hundred percent of my time, but a hundred percent of my energy and reliance of making an income and a hundred percent of my focus on that. It took me a long time to do that. And of course, when I started to do that, the business started to grow. So it's inevitable that you ask yourself, well, what if I would have done that sooner? Right. That's such a good point. Okay. That's number one. Number two is not trusting my gut. Because I think that in wine, just like cooking, just like many artistic endeavors, it is like we said, it's both science and art. But there are very you're you're making yourself very vulnerable because all of your decisions of crafting the best X that you can make is right there on your shoulders and for the world to evaluate and judge. And there are times that that can be extremely intimidating. Sure. And um. 
I remember I was getting ready to release one wine and I tasted it right before release and I was feeling really insecure about it. Why? And I just wasn't sure. I just wasn't sure. P.S. When when I worked through doubting myself and got some other people to try it, they loved it. I released it. It did really well. And it helped me realize you're always your own biggest critic. And sometimes you have to trust the decisions that you've already made, that those decisions you did creating the best possible outcome that you could. It's just hard. No doubt. And I think most entrepreneurs have to work through that. You know what I mean? The totally. doubt over a product or new idea or, you know, and, and that's something that, and there's no one to kind of give you the answer. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no thing to go read to say, this is how you should do it. Um, exactly. So fascinating. Um, and looking out the next 12 to 18 months, what are your big plans? Anything new innovation wise um, or things you, you're really focused on in terms of growth? Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that I'm focused on is I've brought on two new vineyards, which is, um, uh, it's going to be a get to know you process. I always say that the first three years of working with a new site is a get to know you. Um, so I have two new sites that I am working with starting this year's harvest, Great. Uh, including AMA, which is a totally new varietal for me oh, wow. as well. I'm planting our, I'm planting our state vineyard. I'm expanding that significantly and replanting it. Um, so those are all things that, you know, on any given day, I feel like I have five vintages that I'm working on, um, both what we're planning that we're not going to see the fruits of for right. three or four years, right. um, the, you know, and the current vintage and, and other vintages as well. Wow. That's exciting. Um, so fun. I mean, I, it, I, I always learned so much, um, in doing these and I knew that I'd get a lot out of today's, uh, discussions and so great meeting you, Jessica. Um, before we go though, share with our audience where they can find you, connect with you, buy product, get on the wine club list, you know, everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So best way to connect with us is either on social or on online. So online, you can find us at www.et F-I-L-L-E-W-I-N-E-S.com, afewines.com. And on social, we're at afewines on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter. I love it. Easy. So cool. Um, I can't wait to come visit. And uh, I, you got to come back on down the road as you continue to launch and grow, no pun intended, um, your brand. And it's just been so cool having you here. Excited for you. Lots of runway and like stretch for you, I, I think, in, in what you, you're doing there. And uh, really, really cool how, you, how you've taken some things in your career and you said, you know what, I'm going to go do what I'm most passionate about. I'm going to make it even better. So um, Jessica, so great to have you with us today. You got to come back. Thank you so much, Justin. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contendercast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.